The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. I'd like to continue our consideration of the Gospel of John. Return to John chapter 3 this evening. And we consider the first portion of Nicodemus's discussion with Jesus by night. And he introduces, Jesus introduces the topic of the new birth. And it's very important as we continue through uh, this uh, rest of this discussion and interaction with Nicodemus. We want to try to be aggressive tonight and make it all the way through there. We'll see how we do. But it's very important that we look at this whole conversation in context. And Jesus set the topic. He set the tone. He set the subject of the new birth. And we considered those verses from uh, verse 1 through verse 8. Last time that he described the necessity of the new birth to see the kingdom of God. And then he gets in verse 8 to describing the effects of the new birth and the effects that blows like the wind. And when you see the wind blow, then we don't know the exact millisecond that that wind touched that leaf, but we can make reasonable conclusions because we see a leaf move. So what he's dealing with through the rest of his discussion with Nicodemus is the effects of the new birth the effects of the wind blowing, and primarily belief. Primarily belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So it's very important that we understand that. That the main subject, the main context of this entire discussion with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 is the necessity of the new birth and then the effects of the new birth. And he's trying to tell Nicodemus the effects of the new birth is much broader than you think it is. The effects of the new birth is in the whole world, not just in the Jewish nation, not just in the Pharisees. You see the effects of the wind of the Holy Spirit having blown in the heart of children of God. You see that evidence far beyond just the Jewish nation. And he's trying to emphasize that to Nicodemus. So, after he concludes the first portion of their Discussion there in verse 8 by saying the wind bloweth where it listeth. Thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh or whether it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Everyone that's born again is born again the exact same way. Not exceptions, not loopholes. Every child of God is born again in the exact same way. And Nicodemus is still looking at this discussion from a natural plane. You know, uh, I know... You see, you see the, uh, the progression of Nicodemus through the Gospel of John, and you see him growing a little bit in John chapter 7 where he's kind of passively defending Jesus, but not really ready to fully commit yet. But by the end of it, there in uh, John chapter 19, he's taking the body of Jesus and anointing him for the burial. And you know that uh, later on, as m- much of the uh, discussions that Jesus had in his life made a lot of sense to the apostles after his resurrection, you know that, that Nicodemus had much more clarity on this discussion in the future. 
But right now, he's still thinking, how can somebody enter the second time into their mother's womb? This doesn't make any sense, being born a second time. So Jesus says in verse 10, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? We're going to go ahead and read through verse 21, and hope to be able to consider all of that portion this evening. Verse 11, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and you receive not our witness. If I told you earthly things, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. So he's saying, listen, Nicodemus, you're a Pharisee. You have been schooled in the Old Testament scriptures. Art thou a master in Israel, and you don't understand these things? As a side note, we won't take the time to to look at examples, but there are many references to the new birth in the Old Testament as well. They should have had some degree of understanding of this, but he said, look, you know the, the Word of God better than anybody, and you don't understand what I'm talking about. And by the way, if I have uh, told you of earthly things, and you don't understand it, and you don't believe it, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And I'd love to just post up right there and spend the rest of the time talking about the, the omnipresence of God and the omnipresence of Jesus Christ. It's amazing to think about the fact that Jesus Christ is in us, the hope of glory, in, every, in the heart of every single child of God, and at the same time as he is the Son of Man, was walking the face of the earth, he was still in heaven. He, yeah. made, he references that many different times in his discussions, uh, that, it, that they would be with me where I am. He was still in heaven. And that is just an amazing testimony of the omnipresence of God, and certainly that's, that's a significant aspect of the mystery of godliness that Jesus was incarnated, but also he was still in heaven at the same time. Now, I really want to look at, obviously we know the 16th verse, John three sixteen, the most popular verse in all of Christianity, and we want to put that in the right context, but we want to look at not just that verse, but this portion of verses 
Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you are a Pharisee, you know the Old Testament scriptures. So therefore, let me give you an Old Testament example for you to learn the lesson that I'm trying to teach you of the effects of the new birth and the effects of belief. So he's telling Nicodemus, you know the Old Testament scriptures, so I'm teaching you this lesson through a story that you know very well in the Old Testament scriptures. So if we're going to understand John chapter 3 and verse 16 properly, we have to look at John 3.16 through the lens of Numbers 21. Right. Okay, so let's turn there. Let's turn there. Numbers 21. And again, this is a story that Nicodemus would have known very well. And Jesus uses this example to teach him the the effects and the power of belief in Jesus Christ in this context in a temporal sense. But before we, uh, I do want to highlight, you can go ahead and turn there to Romans, uh, turn over there to Numbers 21. But I want to highlight some of the phrases here in John 3 that are used to present an invitation of salvation that God loved the whole world without exception and then it's up to the believer to choose to believe and if you do then you will receive eternal life. When it says um, whosoever verse 15, whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Well Jesus came into this world for a reason the son of man would be lifted up he came into this, this world for a purpose whosoever believeth is not gaining eternal life and being saved from eternal perishing by believing, whosoever believeth is simply describing a born-again child of God. Okay? Yeah. So I also want to think about the whosoevers, which get a lot of emphasis in Christianity today. I want you to think about the whosoevers through the lens of Numbers 21 and think about who the whosoevers are. Okay? Who are the whosoevers? <laughs> well, they are simply here in John 3, they're describing, they're just another title, if you will, for children of God. Because if someone believes, that's evidence that they're already a born-again child of God. It's not an imitation for salvation. It's just another phrase to describe children of God. So I want you to think about the whosoevers. And I also want you to think about the, the use of the term world through the lens of Numbers 21 and this account that Jesus gives as an example to teach the, list, the lesson to Nicodemus, okay? So Numbers 21. Here we find Israel in the wilderness, and as they often did, they began to complain in the wilderness. Numbers 21 and verse 4. They journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom, and the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. They got discontent with God's provision. Sounds a lot like Adam in the Garden of Eden, right? Got, they got discontent with the manna that showed up every day. They got discontent with God's blessings, and they began to murmur against the Lord. The people spake against God and against Moses, saying, Wherefore have you brought up brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. And this just tells you how, number one, just in a natural sense, when you get uh, physically tired, when you get physically hungry, when you have all these, these physical symptoms, they can really affect you just thinking rationally. Okay? Yeah. So just, just think about this phrase. 
And, th- and for some reason, they couldn't understand the inconsistency of literally this phrase where they said, there is no bread, neither is there any water. Our soul loatheth this light bread. They're complaining because they don't have any bread. Really, they just don't like. And they had got tired of the bread that they'd been getting for day after day after day and day, year upon year. So even in the same sentence, they say, we don't have any bread. We just don't like this bread that we are getting. They even acknowledged it was still bread. (laughs) But they were just so discouraged that they're just making irrational statements. Sounds a lot like children of God, doesn't it? We get discouraged. We get a little tired. We get a little, get a little hangry, right? And we start making irrational statements that the first part of the sentence directly contradicts the ending of the sentence. Sounds just like children of God, unfortunately. So, many times the Lord is gracious and merciful. But this time, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. It's very important that there were people that were afflicted by the snake bite, and there were people that passed away prior to there being this opportunity of the brazen serpent being lifted up for the opportunity for them to choose to look upon them and receive a deliverance in their life. There were people that passed away prior to the Lord offering that opportunity for them. So then, verse 7, people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. They acknowledge that we have spoken against the holiness of God. We have sinned and we've spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. Moses there being a beautiful picture, I believe, of the interceding nature of Jesus Christ. He's praying for the people. They, they realize that they've made a mistake. And he's interceding on their behalf. And then the Lord told Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, he shall live. And then Moses made a serpent of brass, and he put it on a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Okay, so first of all, first of all, who are the only people that are under consideration that have been bitten by a serpent that are still alive, that have a physical ability to look on this serpent, and they know that they have a problem, they are seeking a remedy for their problem, and they are given the opportunity to receive healing and deliverance by making that decision. Did, did the Lord tell the Chinese or the Native Americans or people that were all throughout this world, right? Who were the people that were commanded to look upon this serpent that would be lifted up? Was it the whole world that was commanded to look on the serpent? No, it was God's people. It was God's chosen people that had already been redeemed out of Egyptian bondage, which is the children of God, right? That's the picture here. The children of God that have already been powerfully redeemed from the bondage of sin 
Now, those that are afflicted, those that in the providence of God, you know, the Lord, um, our times are in God's hands. And, you know, the Lord could have sustained those people that died previous to this. The Lord could have chosen to sustain them a little bit longer. So it was in the Lord's providence that these people were still alive to have the opportunity to look upon the serpent, right? Well, I think those people that died prior to that serpent being lifted up are a good lesson of the Old Testament saints that were still God's chosen people. But you know what? They didn't have the blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ to look upon that serpent and receive the fullness of deliverance that we have in the kingdom. Now, they got a little bit of it, right? They got, they got a little bit of justification by faith. They got a little bit of understanding. You know, I think uh, Abraham and, and Job and some of these people, David, they, they had a little bit of understanding, a little bit of, of gospel knowledge that gave them deliverance and peace. But, but they sure did not have the clarity of vision that we have to be able to look on the cross and, and to believe on Jesus Christ and receive that healing in our soul and our conscience by making that decision to trust in Jesus Christ. Not to receive eternal life, but to feel the effects of justification by faith. Amen. Okay? So, number one, who were the whosoevers? Who were the whosoevers? It was God's people. It was God's chosen people. Was it the whole world? Right? No, it wasn't the whole world. It was God's chosen people that had been delivered out of bondage already and that had life, right? right. They had life. We know that uh, man, apart from the regenerating work of the new birth, that man is dead in trespasses and in sin. I mean, you can tell a, a dead man to believe all day long. He's just going to stay dead and he's not going to believe, right? We know you have to have life. To commit action. You have to have spiritual life to, to have spiritual action. So, number one, this opportunity to look upon the serpent and to receive the deliverance and the peace and the healing and the salvation, the temporal salvation, the now salvation. Not to be saved to heaven, but to keep, keep living, Right? That was offered to God's chosen people of the Old Testament and for those that were still alive and those that saw their need. They were not comfortable in their current position. And they felt like that there was something that could give them deliverance from my current affliction. You know, uh, the Bible doesn't necessarily here in this context highlight whether anyone chose to go ahead and die. They chose to not look up on the serpent. But you know what? These are God's people. And if it's a, if it's a depiction, an accurate sampling size of, uh, of the Lord's children, I feel like there were some people that were stubborn enough to say, you know what? I don't care what Moses says. I'm still mad at him. I'm not going to look at that serpent. Well, you know what they did? They did not receive the healing and the deliverance and the salvation. Now that had no effect on whether they were a child of God or not, but they died in suffering because of their own stubbornness to not show the humility to see their need and to look upon the serpent. Okay? So, 
some aspects of this serpent. First of all, the serpent was the reason why they were in this affliction and they had been received this poisonous bite and they were uh, about to die. The reason why they were under, under the penalty of death was because of the serpent. So, in remedy for their salvation, the Lord tells Moses to make the form of the same thing that caused them to be in a position of death. Right? So, I believe that's teaching us that, that Adam, he's a man, right? The first Adam. And then Jesus had to be made in the same likeness and in the same form of the person who caused the whole problem to start with, right? He's the second Adam, and he came, and he had to take upon himself the, the, the form of a servant. He had to take upon himself the likeness of sinful men. Why? Because that was the only way that the original offense could be redeemed is by the same form being the means of salvation, right? So there was a serpent that caused the, the judgment of death, and then there was a serpent, the form of a serpent, that was offered this salvation as well, this gospel temporal salvation, if you'll let me use that language. The serpent was brass. Brass is an alloy made out of copper and zinc, and an alloy is not necessarily 50-50 in the sense of this half of the element is is copper and then there's a dividing line and this half of the element is zinc no they are all just commingled together that an alloy is it's it's both fully copper and zinc right. together right it's not a, a dividing line of this is where the copper stop, start uh, stops and this is where the zinc starts right no it's all just commingled together in one element which I believe is pointing toward Jesus Christ as both the Son of God and the Son of Man, 100% the Son of God, and also 100% the Son of Man. That's pointing, that brazen serpent is pointing toward Jesus Christ as well. And it was put up on a pole and lifted up. Well, that sounds a lot like a cross, doesn't it? That he was put on a cross and he was lifted up, and now the people that were God's chosen people that had been afflicted uh, and bitten, by these serpents that saw their need, that saw the, 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 their inability for them to solve their, their judgment of death, they looked upon the serpent and what did they receive? Healing and deliverance and salvation. There could have been some people there that were really stubborn and said, you know what, I just don't believe in this brazen serpent. And then maybe, maybe they passed away because of their stubbornness. But these people were lifted up. Uh, this, this serpent was lifted up for those that were still alive. Remember, some people had already died, I think, pointing toward the Old Testament saints that didn't have the privilege of looking on the clarity of the gospel and the clarity of Jesus Christ being lifted up in the New Testament scriptures. But those that saw their need and those that showed enough that, that they didn't just see their need. They felt a conviction that there's something outside of me that I have to seek for my deliverance. Well, that, that sounds a lot like those people in Acts chapter 2 that were pricked in the heart and said, 
men and brethren, what shall we do, right? right. What, did, what did Peter say? <laughs> he essentially said, look at the brazen serpent, right? Yeah. Look at Jesus Christ who was on the cross. And when they looked on that, uh, when they looked on Jesus Christ and they believed on Jesus Christ, yes, there were 3,000 people added to the roll books of the church. But it says that 3,000 souls were added yeah. to the church. Do you understand, right, that in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 souls got saved on the day of Pentecost, <laughs> right? 3,000 souls got saved by believing on Jesus Christ. Because I'll tell you, they felt in need of deliverance from something when they asked those apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They needed deliverance from something. And when they looked on Jesus Christ, they received that deliverance. They were, their soul was saved. And they felt that answer of a good conscience toward God, and they felt that peace of justification by faith in their soul and in their conscience. So, <clears throat> let's return to John chapter 3. And again, we look at these verses through the lens of the lesson that Jesus is teaching to this very learned Jewish Pharisee. And, and he would have understood this lesson. In the sense when, uh, you know, many people in Christianity have a hard time kind of understanding this. And, and I, I know y'all have the same kind of conversations that I have. You know, God loved the people before the foundation of the world. And he didn't see fit to bestow his grace and favor upon everybody. And then the, the rebuttal for all the rest of the rightly dividing of the word of God is someone says, well, the John 3.16 says, for God loved the whole world. Right? That's always the first rebuttal. You want to know who I think probably understood the best what Jesus was talking about? Nicodemus. Yeah. Right? Do you think that Nicodemus received the message of Moses lifting up a serpent in the wilderness and said, you know what? Yeah. He's talking about that, that, Moses, that, that serpent was lifted up for every single person on the face of the earth. No. Nicodemus would have understood He's just talking about his people, yeah. right? But Jesus is trying to teach Nicodemus a lesson because, yes, he is using this, uh, this Old Testament Israelite example to teach a spiritual lesson, but I do believe that Nicodemus is approaching this conversation with Jesus with a misunderstanding that God still only... Maybe not only, but, but his, his primary means of favor in this world is to the natural nation of the Jewish people. And he's trying to teach him through the effects of the new birth that the effects of the new birth are much broader than just the natural nation of Israel. But Nicodemus would have understood from this lesson that when he said the world, he's not talking about every single person in the world, right? He's not talking about every inhabitant of the world. So let's, I want to give you a few verses. Y'all have heard these before, but there may be someone that might listen to this sermon that, that hasn't heard this before, okay? So a few verses that clearly show that every time the word world in Scripture is not talking about the entire world without exception, okay? John chapter 1 Verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now, if Jesus Christ took away the sin of the world without exception, 
please tell me how anyone will be cast into the lake of fire at the general judgment. They, they won't, right? Because he's taken away, all the world's under consideration, he's taken away the sin. There's no sin that's left to be judged by. John chapter 17. John chapter 17 in his high priestly prayer here. He says in verse 6, I've manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Then he goes on to say in verse 9, I pray for them. I pray not for the world. I pray not for the world, but for those which thou hast given me. Now he's primarily talking about the apostles there, but I think he's also talking about the elect family of God as well because he expands this prayer later on far beyond just the 12 or the 11 apostles, okay? So he's saying, I'm not praying for every person in the, uh, that every inhabitant of the world. No, I'm praying for those that God gave me out of the world. Well, that, that's clearly a smaller group than the rest of the world, right? Or the, the whole world without exception. Uh, Romans chapter 1 and in verse 8. First, I thank my God throughout, uh, through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Now, were the Chinese and the Native Americans and people down in South America, were they talking about the faith of, of the Romans? Well, no, right? Anybody can see that. Anybody can see that that is not taught. And some people would say, oh, well, maybe the world may be different. But it says the whole world in other places. Well, that's the whole world right here, too. And clearly, he's not talking about every inhabitant on the face of the earth. He's talking about a very broad, all-inclusive group out of every nation, kindred, people, and tongue, Jew or Greek, bond or free, barbarian or Scythian. It's, it's the world without distinction, not the world without exception. Okay? A few more for you. 1 John chapter 2. And in verse 2, very similar to John chapter 1 and verse 29 that we looked at. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Okay? We need to understand what the word propitiation means. Because that means that Jesus is the atonement for everyone that he's talking about here. Okay? So if that's the case, and everyone in the whole world that their sins have been atoned for, then we have no other option than to believe in universalism. And that's certainly not what, not what the Word of God teaches, right? right? Clearly there are people that are sent to eternal judgment at the end of time. So if he, is, if he took away the sins of the world and he's a propitiation for the sins of the whole world, clearly that is a group that is smaller than every inhabitant of the history of the world. One more for you. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19. And this one right here is just, you know, even in the same verse from beginning to end, there's a clear distinction and a, a, a restriction and a qualification of the whole world. And this is why we have to rightly divide Scripture, compare line upon line and precept upon precept. Because just because it says whole world over here, there's a verse over here that qualifies that whole world. And in this instance, it's in the same verse. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness. Well, obviously the whole world is not lying in wickedness. Why? Because we are of God, right? So there are many other examples we could give, not just of the word world, whosoever, every, all, 
And we know this. You, you know this. And anyone that would use John 3.16 as the ultimate trump card, they know this too. We use all-inclusive terms to speak in very broad, general ways without speaking definitively about every single inhabitant on the face of the earth, right? And we should not expect the Word of God to be any different because it's written to the, the common man, right? It's written the, the way that we would talk is the way that God inspired in Scripture. So, he's teaching Nicodemus here that the effects of the new birth are much broader than just the natural nation of Israel. So he summarizes this by saying that whosoever believes, well, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, whosoever believeth in him, that's not an invitation. That is just simply describing a state, okay? And many other scriptures make it definitively clear that if someone believes in Jesus Christ, they are born of God. So, when he's saying, here's whoever believeth, that's not saying anybody can choose to believe. That's just simply another adjective for a born-again child of God. So, if you'll let me use that, I don't think it's doing any damage to, uh, to the Word of God here. But for simplicity's sake, I think we can understand it better if we'll read it like this. That the born-again... Okay, verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He came into this world for the purpose of dying, be lifted up, that, that he would save his people from their sins. So he's going to be lifted up. What's the purpose that he would be lifted up? That the born-again child of God should not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that the born-again child of God should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Because God has a people out of every nation, kindred, people, and tongue. Every single one of them. He that believeth on him is not condemned. And he that believeth not is condemned already. So your condemnation is not based on your belief or unbelief. Your belief or unbelief is just evidence of the state you're already in. Right? You don't, you don't receive condemnation in an eternal sense, condemnation or justification by your belief. If you believe, that's evidence that you have already been born again. And that's taught so consistently, not just in the Gospel of John, but all throughout the New Testament. So, if you see someone believing, if you see the effects of the new birth, if you see the wind of the Holy Spirit, if you see that leaf move of belief, right? right? What can you say? The wind of the Holy Spirit has already blown. Yeah. Okay? So he that believeth on him, he's already in a state of justification. He's not Amen. condemned. And then he that believes, he's, or believes not, he's yet in his sins. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. That light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be man <clears throat> made manifest that they were wrought in God. Part of the reason I think he's telling Nicodemus this is because Nicodemus was a good, wholesome, righteous, born-again man 
in the middle of a bunch of whited sepulchers. That's right. He was in the middle of a bunch of snakes and vipers and wicked serpents. And he was telling him, listen, the effects of the new birth are much broader than just the, the nation of the Jews. But also, there are some men that give the pretense of religion, that give the pretense of prideful uh, almsgiving. And some people may view them in a positive light, but the real determining factor of if someone is in darkness or light is their response to the Son of God. And when he was in his flesh, now I, I, you would have to ignore multitudes of scriptures to say that every child of God is going to be fully evangelized. But things were different when Jesus Christ was in person talking in front of people. Okay? We're not talking about acceptance or belief of the gospel. We're talking about God manifesting the flesh, being in front of you. And if you attribute the miracles that he performed to Beelzebub instead of God, that is proving that you are in darkness and you are, and you are, and the reason why you want to silence the true light, the reason why you want to put him to death is because now his true light is manifested how wicked and dark you really are. Amen. So they wanted, to, they wanted to stamp out the light. They wanted to kill Jesus Christ. Why? Because now he had come on the scene and he had manifested the wicked. Because a lot of people used to think, you know, they, they'd walk by that Pharisee and they would see him praying his prayer out in front of everybody and giving his tithes. And they would look at him and say, that's a good, that's a holy, righteous man. But when true righteousness showed up here in this world, they were able to see that that man is wicked. And you know what that really lost? I don't think that they they didn't like losing the praise of men, but really that lost them power and control. And they were, they were grasping at every straw they could to not lose that power of putting men in bondage. That's why they hated Jesus is because the true light came and he manifested the wickedness of their dead alien souls. Okay? And I think that's part of the reason that Jesus is telling Nicodemus this is because you are in the middle of a bunch of wicked men. And if they not just reject, not just passively ignore, but when these men that you are aligned with attribute my, you're attributing, that's how we started the conversation, right? He started the conversation by saying, we, me and at least a couple other people, we know that the actions that you're performing, you must have come from God. But there were other men within his circle of the Pharisees that said, this, these are the actions of Beelzebub. And Nicodemus needed, needed to understand, these men are not born again. They are in darkness. Now, there is no conclusion <laughs> to this conversation. Jesus finishes what he has to say, and then we move on totally to another, to another topic. Now, I think the lesson that Jesus was really trying to teach Nicodemus here, I think that we can actually see the, uh, the fullness of it in Acts chapter 10 as Peter was going to the Gentiles. He's trying to teach Nicodemus, that God has a people in the, out of the whole world, Jew, Jews and Greeks, out of every nation, kindred, people, and tongue. 
And these Jews, these Jewish Christians, still had this closed ideology that only Jews are God's favored people. And then the Lord moves in, Nicod- and moves in Peter to go and preach to Cornelius. He shows up and he sees the fruit of the Spirit, right? He sees the fruit of the Spirit. He sees men that are devout, that are seeking God and earnestly desiring what the Spirit would have for them. He sees the, the leaf moving and he says the Holy Spirit has already been here. And this is his summary. I think this, this right here is what Jesus was trying to teach Nicodemus when he said, for God so loved the world. He was trying to teach him this point. Peter shows up. He sees the effects of the new birth in a place that he was a little surprised that it was there. And he says, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness needs to accept Jesus Christ as his personal Savior, right? No. Y'all know what it says. He that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. If you see somebody doing that, that is evidence of the new birth. And I think Peter, he was following the leadership of the Spirit, but he, he showed up probably with a little bit of preconceived notions too. But I think that he learned the lesson that Jesus was trying to teach Nicodemus is that God, praise the Lord, has a diverse, broad family out of every single nation, kindred, people, and tongue. And if we see someone exhibiting that fruit of the Spirit, then we can say along with Peter, and especially we can say along with Paul, of those Thessalonians, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Why, why do I have a confidence of your election of God? Now, Yes, it's true that he exhibited, he saw the fruit of a labor of love and a patience of hope. And yes, love is an evidence of the new birth. But if someone exhibits some degree of, or your perception of agape love, but they openly reject Jesus Christ, we do not have the right to give them gospel assurance. Right. That love and that patience of hope was also cemented with, with our gospel came unto you, not in word only, but in power and in much assurance. Yeah. Right? So belief in Jesus Christ is the plumb line. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean that if someone's not believing today, that they're not a child of God, that's a bigger topic uh, for us to consider at a later date. But the general disposition of a child of God when they are exposed to the preaching of the gospel, it may not always come out publicly. But they are stirred in their soul. Why? Because finally, they're hearing a gospel of something that aligns with the gospel that's already written in their heart. So the general disposition of God's children is belief, is belief. And that's the whole point of the gospel of John. That's what we've been talking about. These things are written so that we would believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. When we see the effects of of the new birth and the wind blowing... We just need to say, praise God for his sovereignty and regeneration, Amen. right? Not because somebody made a decision to, to walk out of darkness in the light. Praise God that they've been resurrected out of darkness in the light. And we see the effects of that. We see the effects of that in the new birth when someone confesses a belief 
in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.